is no shortage of scriptures about Jesus touching people. But today, we get an opportunity to look at one of the rare instances where Jesus allowed someone to touch him. Not just the him of his garment, but, but him. Anytime you, you want to really do a good Bible study for your personal devotion or whatever it is, it's good to look at the text you're going to study and ask it some questions and then let the text respond and answer those questions. So I thought I'd do a little exercise for us in that in this message. Let's, let's look at two questions. The first question, and this is pretty common. This is a general question you should ask yourself anytime you're reading a text in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Number one, why did this account make it into Scripture? Why was it included in Scripture? And the reason that's a significant question is John wrote in his gospel that if everything Jesus did, if all of the people he touched and all those individual stories and all of the significance was actually written down, that the world could not contain the books of all that Jesus did. So it's, it's significant because this text made it into the scripture. So you want to ask why? And the answer is this text reveals a juxtaposition between how two different people respond to Jesus, and it's actually only, it reveals the only two ways that people can respond to Jesus. And then the second question, I think we should ask the text, and I feel like this is overlooked when we read this, this account. Why was she crying so much? What made the woman cry so much? Now, you may understand Jewish custom, if, or Jewish custom, if you invited someone into your home for dinner, it was just customary, it was just basic polite kindness that you'd give them a bowl to wash their feet with. Kind of, you know, freshen up before dinner. It's just basic, common courtesy. And Simon, the Pharisee, had forgotten to offer this courtesy to Jesus. So he's sitting there at dinner with feet that have not been washed. And the woman comes in and the text says that she cries so much. It's not just that she's crying on his feet. She cries so much that enough liquid is formed for her to bathe and clean the master's feet with the liquid produced by her tears. Why was she crying so much? And the answer to that question, she was crying so much because of guilt. Do a little research on the woman. She was a prostitute from the brothel island of Magdala. She lived a lifestyle, a lifestyle of perpetual sin. It's not that she was walking, you know, and occasionally had a stumble or a fall. What she did for a living required her to live in a perpetual state of sinful behavior. And not only that, because of her occupation, she had to entice and invite other people 
into that sinful behavior with her. And if you think about the times in which Jesus lived and sort of the brutality of the times, can, can you imagine the abuse and the awful things that happened to this woman in her life of prostitution? Can you imagine the families that she played a role in tearing apart? The weight of the guilt that she carried must have been staggering. Have you ever carried the weight of guilt for something that you've done? There wasn't a lot of amens, but there's not a person in this room that hadn't made a bad choice or done something wrong at some point or another in your life. And when we talk about guilt in church, in Christendom, we normally talk about guilt only from the negative perspective, like it's a bad thing, not realizing guilt can be a good thing. Where does guilt come from in the first place? Guilt is just a signal that your behavior is not lining up with your calling, that you're living beneath the calling and the life that God has for you. Guilt is a, is a signal that you knew to do better and you could have done better and you should have done better, but you didn't. And so there's a part of you down on the inside, the better part of you, that is screaming, that's not who I am. When you commit the thing or you do the thing or you say the thing or you end up in the thing and, and there's a part of you down on the inside desperate to say, that's not really me. And, and the guilt emerges from that. You know, I may have done what you said I did. But I am not who you say I am. I'm going to say that again. I may have done what you said I did. I am not who you say I am. Have you ever done something that wasn't a good reflection of who you really are? You ain't got to raise both hands. Just blink your eyes at me. Have you ever done something that after you do it, you just look back and you say, what in the world was I thinking that is not who I am. And as if living with the guilt isn't bad enough to add insult to injury, we have to listen to the commentary as people who notice what we did or see what we did or were involved in what we did now whisper about our poor choices and you get mad at them and you want to defend yourself, but it's hard to fight them when what they're saying is true. And guilt is such a heavy burden because it is impossible to feel guilt in a place where you do not care. If you didn't care about it, you wouldn't feel the guilt, but you feel the guilt because you cared so much. Now, there's only two things, only two ways that you can cope with guilt. And the first is you change the narrative. 
Because the weight is so heavy, a lot of people just mentally create a false narrative about what happened. They, in their minds, change up the dynamics of the reality of what happened to make the memory of it more palatable. We, we go back to the events in our mind and we block out what we're ashamed of. Now, we remember how people responded to what we did. And we remember how they, their response hurt us. But conveniently, we block out what we did to elicit the response. And we end up being angry and bitter at them for something that we really caused. But we blocked it out. Refusing to take responsibility for our role in the dysfunction. Because if we were to embrace the responsibility, if we were to remember the whole story, how it really happened, we would find ourselves bearing the weight of some guilt. And what we don't realize is this, this is just a defense mechanism. It doesn't mean you're evil. It doesn't mean you're wicked. You're just doing it to keep yourself from the weight load, from the pain of the guilt and the shame of the wrong things that you have done. But what you don't realize is, is creating a false narrative about what really happened blocks you from being healed, restored, and blessed by God. Because God's glory will only fall on truth. And if you will never tell the truth to yourself about the situations in your life that have gone negative that you were involved in, if you're always blame shifting and changing the narrative, it keeps you blocked from the healing and the power and the glory of God to flow into those broken places and fix you. This false narrative thing, we see it in the scripture, particularly clearly with the man who was at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. 38 years trying to get healed, 38 years it never happened. And so that's painful to lose 38 years. There's some, some guilt that comes along with wasting 38 years. So he, he built him a false narrative to make him feel better. You know, I would have been healed, but somebody else keeps getting in front of me and getting in the pool before I do. I would have been better. I would have been further along by now, but I don't have anybody to help me get down into the pool. And other people are refusing to help me. I would be better, but they won't help me. And as a result, he can't get healed. So when Jesus comes up to him, Jesus Christ can't even heal the man until he breaks and the that the man has made. And he does it with a question. Jesus looks at him and says, do you really want to be made well? Before he can heal him, he has to cut out the false narrative. He has to smash through that wall of lies the man had built to tell himself and excuse while he was still in this situation. 38 years? You couldn't get in the pool? You couldn't like inch your way closer in 38 years? In 38 years, you couldn't make a deal with somebody and barter or bargain or something? In 38 years, you couldn't get better? But that's, that's what we do. When the reality of the situation is too painful for us to embrace, we flip it. We flip the narrative and we turn it into something that it is not. And there isn't a prayer line in the world that can help you 
when you've built a false narrative and continue to lie to yourself about why you are where you are and how you are and what happened. Like, like the father who's furious with his daughter because she disrespected him. She stood flat-footed in his kitchen and called him out of his name. I can't believe that girl would say that to me. This generation has lost their minds. They have no respect anymore. They don't know anything about honor. They don't know how to talk to their elders. And, and, and you feel the offense because of what she said, but you left out the fact that the reason she said it is she saw what you were doing with the neighbor across the street. And you have the nerve to be so angry and feel justified in your anger because you conveniently blotted that part. I don't know what's wrong with my son. I don't know what's wrong with my daughter. I don't know what's wrong with these kids. You probably do. And it could be spelled Y-O-U. Maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't put the time you were supposed to into that relationship. Maybe you weren't wise enough to raise and deal with some of those circumstances that came. Maybe it was your failure. Maybe it was your brokenness, but you can't go down that road because that would involve getting up under the weight of that guilt. So you change the narrative and they're just a bad kid. Or it's their mama's fault or their daddy's fault. Or it's, it's, it's another one. It's a generational curse. Before you blame the devil, check the mirror. I'm not saying the devil isn't active. I'm not saying he doesn't do some stuff. But before you blame him, make sure you give a good, close look in the mirror. So, so we started... We started the sermon asking some questions, remember? Okay. We started with that second question when we said, why was she crying so much with enough tears to adequately bathe the dirty feet of the master? What was making her cry so much? The guilt did that. The weight did that. The load of the burden did that. And here we see the benefit of guilt. The weight of it will drive you to search for the only one who can take it off. You don't hear what this preacher is saying. When you finally get out of denial and you fully embrace just how broken you are, just how messed up you are, just how unfixable you are, when you embrace how much hurt you've caused other people and how your failures have messed up the lives of others, when you start to embrace that and get up under the weight of it, all of a sudden it will make you feel like you're being crushed. It'll make you feel like you're dying on the inside and desperate people do desperate things. It will 
craft a desperation in your soul. I got to find somebody to get this off of me. I got to find somebody to get this load off of me. I got to find somebody to get this weight off of me. I can't sleep at night. I got to get this thing off of me. I'm self-medicating because I can't deal with it. I got to get this thing off of me. Have you ever had something that you needed to get off of you? Have you ever had something that was driving you, that was haunting you, that was a slave master to you, it just kept beating you in the mind and beating you in the soul, and you said, I got to get this off of me. That's why she was crying so much. She wanted to get it off of her. She wanted to get it off of her. I can't drink it away. I tried. I got to get it off of me. I can't sleep with enough people to get it away. I got to get it off of me. I can't pop enough pills to get it away. I have got to get it off of me. And then she found out that Jesus Christ was coming to her city. Oh, my God. He's coming here. He can get it off of me. He can get it off of me. He'd get it off me. Where's he going to be? He's having dinner with Simon. And she said, I know it's wrong to break into that man's house. And I know everybody's going to talk about me for breaking into that man's house. I know it's against all of the cultural norms for me to break into that man's house. But if Jesus is going to be there, I'm going to break in that man's house, interrupt their meeting, throw a monkey wrench in the whole shebang they have. And I'm going to go fall at the feet of Jesus. And I am going to get this thing off of me me. I got to get it off of me. I got to get it off of me. And so, and so they're having dinner and everybody's gathered around and, and, and the supper service has started and Simon's got the, the table set and there's all these important people in the room. And here comes this woman kicking the door open, rushing to the feet of Jesus, falling down because she knew in her soul, if I'm ever going to get this thing off of me, I got to get to the feet of the only one one who has the power to take it off. That's what salvation is. That's what conversion looks like. That's what altar calls are made of. Not people casually coming down, popping gum with their hands in their pocket. Somebody saying, if I don't get to Jesus right now, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to die. I'm going to kill myself. I'm never going to be able to sleep again. i got to get it off of me now. And what really makes Jesus amazing, contrary to the Christian bookstore bestsellers, what really makes Jesus amazing is not his ability to bless you. Oh, hallelujah. What really makes Jesus amazing is not his ability to give you the favor of God. What really makes Jesus amazing is not even his ability to heal you from cancer. What really makes Jesus amazing is when you drag all of your guilt and and the load of your shame and all the wrong that you've done and all your past failures and mistakes and the things you did wrong when you knew to do right and, and you carry all of that to his feet. 
He'll take it off of you. He'll take it off of you. There's people in this room that you know Jesus was the one that took it off of you. He took it off of you. He took it off of me. I'm not telling you what I think. I'm not telling you what I read. I'm telling you what I experienced. Jesus took it off of me. Is there anybody in the room that remembers what it was like when you came to him with the heavy load and the heavy shame and the heavy burden and the heavy guilt and Jesus touch three people say he took it off of me he he took it off of me. touch him touch him say he took it off of me he took it off of me say he took it off of me See, religion tells you if you get right and you go back to all those people you wronged and you make restitution and you fix it, then you can get it off of you. Here's the problem with that. A lot of the stuff we've done, we can't make right. You had the you had the abortion. You can't get that baby back. It's just on you. You let that man you didn't hardly know come into your house because you were so lonely and he raped your daughter. And you called her a liar. You can't go back and, and clean that up. Those people you know were sketchy molested your child because you left them with them. people you hit with the car that night permanently disabled because you couldn't hold your liquor and you had one too many what do you do when you can't go back and fix it what do you do when you can't go make restitution you can't do enough community service it's gone Jesus is the only one that can take it off of you without you having to go back and trying to clean it up yourself. I said Jesus. I don't know if you're here with me. I said Jesus is the only one who can take it off of you without you having to go back and clean it up. Those things you said that you can't unsay. 
those things you did that can't be undone. How am I going to get this? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You better hear me. What can make me whole again? Nothing. I've always wondered what was behind the author's O. I wondered how much sin, how much shame, how much abuse, how much neglect, how much pain, how much substance addiction, how much. I wonder what was behind the O when he said, oh, precious. See, see what makes Jesus precious to me is personal. Because my guilt was personal. My shame was, was personal. It was not what you did. It was what I did. My salvation has nothing to do with you. It's not about what he took off you. It's about what he took off. And you don't understand me. When you see me lifting my hands. And you see me crying, and you see me screaming, and you see me running all over the stage. And the reason you don't understand it is you don't know how heavy the weight was. You don't know how big the load was. You don't know how dark the night was. But when Jesus took it off of me, I said, when Jesus took it off of me, As some of you know, as he took it off of you. Some of you know, because you wouldn't be here this morning if he hadn't taken it off of you. Some of you know, because as you look back over your life, you know that you're five years better today than you were five years ago. You know you've been improving. You know you've been taking steps. You know that God's been untying the knots and unraveling the pain of your experience and what you went through and what you did and what people did to you. He's, 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 he's taking it. He's taking it off me. Why was she crying so much? Because with every tear, he's taking it off. Just, just taking it off of her. Just taking it off of her. And you, and you like to come to church and give God praise for promotions. And, and you like to give God praise for blessings. And, and you like to give God praise for miracles. And you like to give God praise for favor. But I will bless the Lord at all times. And his praise will continually be in my mouth. No matter what I'm driving, no matter where I'm living, no matter what I got on my back or no matter what I got in my belly. Because I remember how heavy it was. Oh, is there a worshiper in the house that remembers how heavy it
So the text is amazing because Simon basically asks the question that we started with today. In verse 39, Simon looks over at her crying. And basically, Simon says, why is she crying so much? Why is she, why is she crying so much? When he saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is I got to stop right there and thank God that he'll let sinners touch him. <laughs> See, it's not just that he touched me. It's that he allows me with all of my faults and all of my wrongs and all of my past and all of my filth and all of my degradation and shame. He allows me still to come with my dirty hands and See, once you lose your innocence, you can never get it back. Once you're guilty, you can never get your innocence back unless you touch the innocence of Jesus. <laughs> once you're filthy, you can never get your purity back, but you can touch the purity of Jesus. What a God we serve that would let the guilty touch innocence, that would let the filthy touch purity. He let her touch. If he were a prophet, if he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is touching him. The fool assumes he has God's heart on the matter. That if God really knew all she had done, he wouldn't be interested in touching her. What Simon doesn't realize is Jesus is all-knowing. What Simon doesn't realize is Jesus didn't accept the invitation because he knew Simon was going to be there. Jesus accepted the invitation because he knew the woman was coming. And he sat through the meal with all of those important people while he was waiting on a sinner, on a tramp, on a whore to break in the room, fall down at his feet and worship him with her filthy self. Jesus heard him say it. And so in verse 40, he says, Simon, I got, I got something to say to you. The teacher, say it. Verse 41, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing to repay, he frankly or freely forgave them both. Tell me which of them will love him more. Jesus is trying to bring up the issue to Simon that we've been discussing all day. Simon, you're acting like she's the only guilty one in the room. 
because your false narrative and deceptive construct has precluded you from feeling like you ought to be right next to her at my feet, getting your forgiveness and your restoration. But Simon, I have the ability to help you, but you've tied my hands because I can't fix what you won't admit is broken. Oh, you better preach, Jason Sides. So, so he said... So he said, the, the, the problem is, Simon, you don't think you're guilty because you didn't do what she did. So you've lifted yourself up in judgment just because you don't owe what she owes, but you do owe. Now, the difference between you and her, may, maybe she owed 500 and, and you only owed 50. But you're still both in debt. And Simon, what I wish you would see is that there's room at my feet for you to. If you'll drop the narrative, if you'll get up under the guilt. You'll see why you need to be right down here. He used to sing an old song at the camp meetings. There's room at the cross for you. There is room at the cross for you. Though millions have come. There's still room for one. There is room at the cross for you. There's room, Simon. But Simon can't get it because he won't drop the narrative. He don't want to feel the guilt. So he can't receive the forgiveness. Next verse. Next verse. It had been a good place to quit, but he turned to the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? What a ridiculous question. Come here, please. Pastor, come here. You see this woman? Well, obviously, she's standing right. Simon, do you see this woman? But it's an important question because Jesus knows that people can see you and still not see you. They see what you did, but they can never see who you really are. And they will judge you all of your life and talk about you like a dog over what you did while they never know who you really are. And the truth of the matter is even the people closest to you don't know who you really are. The people you lay down with in the bed at night don't really know who you really are. They don't, they don't know what you didn't tell them. They don't know what you never shared with them. They don't know who you really are. But this man 
that Jesus knows everything about you, sees everything about you, understands everything about you, knows all the redacted parts of your story, and yet he calls you to his feet. Seest thou this woman? Yeah, Simon. You said she was a sinner because you saw what she did. But man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Pause. If God sees beyond what people do and realizes there's a deeper level that goes to who they are, why don't we stop labeling people just by the things that they do? You see this woman? I entered your house. You, you do know Jesus is God. I entered your house and, and you didn't give me any water for my feet. <laughs> uh, you, you didn't give me any water. And uh, yet she washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You didn't give me a kiss. You didn't even greet me right. Uh, but, but, but she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Since the time I came in, you didn't give me any oil for my head. She's anointed. She's anointed my feet. Some people never will give Jesus anything. They'll be in the room with him like you are this morning, but won't give him nothing. Won't lift a hand won't clap, won't sing, won't shed a tear, won't even smile, won't give him nothing. Basically, the Lord is saying to Simon, I came in your house, I'm here, and you gave me nothing. How do you come to church and have the arrogance and audacity with your messy self to sit through an entire service and give God nothing. No shout, no praise, no tears, no song, certainly no offering. Give him nothing. Simon, I came to your house. You didn't give me Now, you still suppose yourself to be superior to her, but it's because you don't understand my love language. The love language of God is not perfection because no matter how hard you try, you never can achieve it. The love language of God has never been perfection. It's always been praise. And so, and so when the woman comes in, okay, when the woman comes in and she kneels down and she begins to praise the Lord and weep over the Lord and worship the Lord and, and honor the Lord, you got to see what's happening. See, the problem, the reason you're not a good worshiper. I feel my apostolic anointing all over me. Listen to me. The reason you're not a good worshiper. 
The reason some of you remember how your grandma could sing and the whole way the room felt would change, that there'd be electricity just buzzing all around you and just, just something powerful about it. And she had something that you don't have. The reason why nothing happens when you do sing, when you rarely do sing, the reason you're not a great worshiper is because you've never got up under the weight of the guilt. See, when you get up under the weight of the guilt and Jesus takes it off, the weight of the guilt is then replaced with the weight of gratitude. And oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. And so as guilty as you were, as motivated and driven as you were by guilt, once he takes it off, the guilt is replaced by gratitude, and you turn into one of those radical people, one of those crazy praises, one of those people that never miss church on a Sunday, one of those people that praise the Lord in their kitchen washing dishes, one of those people that have the Holy Ghost come in their car and God all over them all the time because, 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 because because you got under the weight and when you take the weight of your guilt to Jesus and he removes it the, the weight is still there it's just replaced guilt turns into gratitude guilt turns into thank you Jesus guilt turns into I worship you Lord guilt turns into you're saying the blessing over the meal and a tear starts streaming down your face and you start speaking in tongues under your breath because you get a flashback of how good God's been to you and guilt turns into it's the law you won't remember the message I did, but it's the law of displacement. When one thing is removed or displaced, it is replaced with another. And so, and so even though Simon says she was a sinner and the Bible says she was a sinner and even Jesus is about to say, yes, she's a sinner. Because of the weight of her gratitude, her gratitude has tied her to God's heart. Oh. Why do I say she was grateful? Why do I say the weight, the enormous, big, heavy load of the weight was replaced with a weight of gratitude? Is because when he said, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She said, you're going to take something off me? Then I'm going to pour something on you. You mean, oh, I feel your anointing, Father. She said, you, go, you mean you're going to take something like that off of me? You're going to take something so heavy, and you're going to take it off of me? Okay, just sit there because I'm going to take something heavy and pour it on you. So she takes out an alabaster box. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. So sorry. But sometimes prostitutes get raped too. 
sometimes the act goes beyond the parameters of the agreement. Being a prostitute, especially in that day, was a brutal living. She, she made a brutal living. A year's worth of her wages, a year's worth of what she had to go through. <laughs> a year's worth of what she endured. She took a year's worth of wages and she didn't open the box because anything open can be closed again. She broke it, just poured it all over Jesus. Because she said, you're going to take something serious off me. I'll pour something serious on you because I want you to know I want my gift to be an adequate expression of my gratitude. That's why we don't have real worshipers anymore. That's why they're a rare, extinct, and dying breed. Because today worshipers that are actually gifted to do it, resent the fact that God would, would want you to give your gift back to him. They got me doing four services this Sunday, girl. I just can't believe they want me to get up there four times on a, on a, on a Sunday. They want me to do another rehearsal. I just cannot believe. Don't they understand? I have a life. And the reason they're so hesitant with giving their gift, giving their service, the reason you so resent putting yourself out for other people that God cares about just as much as you, is you, you don't remember how heavy the weight was. You don't remember how dark the night was. You don't remember. You don't remember. Or maybe you never really got up under the weight of it in the first place. Maybe you're continuing like that man at the pool of Bethesda and you've, you're 38 years strong in your false narrative. And she, and she just broke it. She just broke it all over. I want what I'm offering you to look like, feel like, and smell like the gratitude I feel for what you took off of me. There's stories that would blow your mind in this room right now, you would be shocked at the things God took off of some of us.
I'll never tell you about it, but next time you see me with my hand up as high as I can stretch it, just know I'm thanking him for something he, he took off. I feel him taking something off of somebody in this room right now. You can't hear the gospel preached and not be in the presence of Jesus. And when you're in the presence of Jesus and you pull down that narrative, that's all you got to do. That is repentance. When you pull down that narrative, that is repentance. When you pull down that narrative, that is repentance. And, and he, he's, taking, he's taking it off of some of you right now. After Jesus gets through talking to Simon. See, see he didn't tell the woman she was forgiven. He told Simon that she was forgiven. Okay. Then he turns to the woman. Now notice that maybe me and my mom like talking about stuff we've never seen in the scripture. We like doing that. So I was just going to show you something I've never seen in the scripture. It's just uh, 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 verse 47. Notice the difference, okay? You're smart. Verse 47. Therefore I say to you, he's still talking to Simon. Uh, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, right? Verse 48, then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then look at verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So which one was it? Was it verse 47? Her sins are forgiven because she loved or was it verse 50? Your sins are forgiven because of your faith. And the truth of the matter is they are one in the same. Because the real kind of faith that can get you saved is impossible to have an experience without turning around after you're saved and saying, I lift my hands in total adoration unto you. You reign on the throne, for you are God and God alone. Because of you, my cloudy days are gone, and I can sing to you this song. I just want to say that I That faith in you will make you lift up your hands and say, I love you, Jesus. I worship and adore you. Just want to tell you. I said, if you got real faith, something will bubble up in you. And start to say, I love. I love you. I worship it. I worship it. Adore. Just want to tell you, Just Lord, Lord, I love. Lord, I love For all you took Lord, off of me. For all you forgave. For all you broke off of me. For how you set me free. I love.
worshipers who love him to lift your voice and say If you need to come to this altar, if you got some repenting to do, if you got something you want to lay down at the feet of the Lord, you can come right now. If you're convicted in your conscience by something that you haven't owned up to, if you know that there's something, a barrier between you and God, all it takes is pulling down the narrative, pulling down the construct, pulling down that negative thing and coming to God in truth. And whoever comes to God and calls on the name of the Lord in faith shall be saved. So get down here and do your work. Get down here and get at his feet. He's here. Just want to tell you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, I love you Come down and let him take it off you. Let him take it off you. Oh.